According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22. Last week we were looking at 22.6. This morning I want to look at Proverbs 22.7. If I'm not careful I can spend 10 years in Proverbs 22.7. I think this can launch a tremendous spectrum of uh, studies as it pertains to biblical economics, as it pertains to our finances, uh, the contrast between rich and poor, the difference between a buyer and a seller uh, in particular, which is fascinating to me because it's the same word uh, in, in either case. <laughs> the buyer and the seller, same vocabulary. And so uh, it's curious uh, why we uh, confuse things when I think the Bible makes them pretty simple and uh, the blessings we have to, to uh, learn what God has to say about our finances. Alright, so before we do get started though, let's take a moment for silent prayer calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Father, Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness, Father, and the blessing we have this morning to assemble together, to study, to show ourselves approved. I thank you for the living and abiding Word of God. I thank you, Father, for the, uh, the privilege that it is that uh, you have revealed yourself to us through uh, the, the canon of Scripture. So, Father, we come before you this morning thankful for this blessing and uh, humble before you that you would open our eyes and open our ears and soften our hearts. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Alrighty, so Proverbs chapter 22 as we get going. This is a chapter that really brings um, a certain portion of the book to a close. And I noticed um, in the uh, Ron Rhodes material, if you notice we've reached Proverbs now, if you're following along in the Ron Rhodes material, and uh, come this, I think it's Sunday, when we'll reach chapter 22 in, uh, in the daily reading. And he does put a break right there in verse uh, 16, and then uh, takes uh, verses 17 and following as uh, the final portion of the book of Proverbs from 22.17 to the end of Proverbs 31. So uh, I thought that was curious and uh, matches what we were talking about in uh, the first part of this chapter. Anyway, as we look at verses uh, 2 through 16, we really find verse 1 as a heading and verses 2 through 16 as really a miniature of the book of Proverbs. And uh, we talked about those issues. Let me see here if I have the right slide. Which I don't. Yeah, here we go. Proverbs 22, 2 through 16 forms a miniature book of Proverbs. And really everything in these verses uh, is a recap of the whole book. And much of what we see here is, is a recap from things we've already seen in the principle, in the principles that Proverbs portrays. So when we're talking about rich and poor and we're talking about debt, uh, it's not new stuff, all right? Proverbs has already talked about debt, already talked about the problems if you become surety for your neighbor. And uh, so much so, yeah, there in Proverbs chapter 6, we're going to review that again today. And we make sure that those principles come across very clearly that we don't violate God's standards for us in terms of our secular life, our family life, our personal life, our financial life, and, uh, and the issues there. And so really looking at verse 1 as a heading where a good name is to be more desired than great wealth and favor is better than silver and gold, 
we understand that those issues, um, living your life with a well-grounded grace reputation, that you take the A part and the B part of the poetry there in verse 1, where you understand that the name is your reputation or your integrity, and of course the grace of God is is where we keep ourselves centered. <laughs> All right? I mean, where do you go wrong with that? Uh, walking your, your Christian walk in the grace of God. And so anyway, taking verse 1 as a heading, and we have uh, the proverbial wisdom of lives uh, in the lives of those with a well-grounded grace reputation, um, fundamentally that's why we're studying the book of Proverbs. We want to finish this study at whatever point God brings us to the conclusion and say, all right now God you've brought us through the uh, the book of Proverbs. We all should be uh, living lives with a, a well-grounded grace reputation. So anyway, enjoying this uh, in a lot of different ways. So as we work our way through A, B, C, D, and E, and then F, we're just taking our way through uh, verse 2 is subpoint A, verse 3 is subpoint B, verse 4, God rewards those who humbly fear Him. That's uh, verse 4, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. And uh, what a thrill that of course it's not earthly riches, earthly honor, or earthly life, what we're talking about, but we're talking about the spiritual honor, the spiritual wealth, the spiritual, the Zoe life that we should have, the abundant Zoe life that we should have in Christ. And it comes down to the the fear of the Lord, humbly walking with our God. And uh, what a great reward that we have. And we're we're reaping those rewards again this morning because here we are to receive even more. And God, uh, He never runs out. He never runs out of the, the wealth, the honor, and the uh, abundant life that we have in the Word of God. Then there's the alternative. If we choose to not walk this simple walk, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, then what we have is perversity. And uh, the warnings here in verse 5, thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. So if the Christian way of life, living in the Word of God is, is simple, well then now we, got, now we complicate things. Now we got complications. Now we have twisted paths. Now we have thorns. Now we have obstacles. The thorns and the snares. And that too is, is a, a gift of God's grace. Thank God that He puts those thorns out there. Thank God that He disciplines us. That he, uh, he allows us to reap what we sow and which, at which point the thorns and the thistles can then be the, the, the reminder for us that we need to get back on the path. We need to get back in the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Uh, so he who guards himself will be far from them. Uh, just live your life in the Word of God. You're guarding yourself from these poor decisions, guarding yourself from the, uh, the way of the perverse. We want nothing to do with the way of the perverse. And uh, <laughs> uh, have you noticed what, what this month is? Did you notice what just started yesterday? Okay, and so here we are. This, uh, we got 30 days of perversity that we're supposed to be ce- celebrating. And a whole month is given over. So, so the honored dead in Memorial Day, and we, you know, the, those that laid down their lives to preserve our, our freedom, they got a day. But the uh, perverse get an entire month. And uh, this is what we have now as we're celebrating the perversions, that uh, the violations of God's design for humanity in, uh, in different ways. Anyway, thorns and snares are the way of the perverse, and that's my, that's my contribution to uh, Perversity Celebration Month. Just mark the time, it's 10.08, we'll see how long it takes for YouTube to ban our channel <laughs> and throw us off. All right, anyway, let's get away from the perverse. 
Then we talked last week about child training. Train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's really, um, I guess that's my favorite translation. It's awkward. Um, there's a lot of Hebrew puzzles with this. Uh, it is a very difficult book. There's man, uh, a verse, even with manuscript issues, it's missing. It's totally gone from the Septuagint. It's not in the, the Greek translation. Um, there's, there's other ways you can render it. Uh, I don't really mind the NASB translation. Um, in any event, uh, clearly the pattern is true. When you do give a grounding in the Word of God, there are lifelong benefits and there are eternal benefits. That uh, when any believer is grounded in doctrine, there's going to be benefits, uh, both in time and in eternity. And uh, the sooner you start that, the better, <laughs> because uh, you're able to instill some of those values and some of those principles and some of those truths. You're able to instill those uh, during the peak of human humility, and that's called childhood. You get to instill those during the time when uh, the child is under the God's grace provision for uh, maximum uh, dependency. And uh, as we saw in the Grace Notes class a couple weeks ago, the, the benefits that we have related to childhood is that when you're born, you have a total 100% dependency. Your, your parents are like God. They are, they are everything. They are the unquestioned authority that they are, um, they have total control over where you live and what you eat and how you get dressed. And in fact, you can't even get dressed. They're dressing you while you're that small and you're that young and, and those issues. And so anyway, that's the, the blessings of childhood and the blessings of humanity in, uh, in these ways. Anyway, the doctrinal grounding. And we covered this. I think we got through the whole, we did. Yeah, we got through Hebrews 4 and James 1. So uh, we looked at all those verses. Um, to just refresh our thinking related to the, the benefits. Lifelong and when your life is eternal then eternal life long benefits. Okay, Which gets us now to verse 7. We've got to talk about money, we've got to talk about rich and poor, we've got to talk about debt, buying and selling, and the relationship structures that come in these economic transactions. And so we look at verse 7 the rich rules over the poor. The rich rules over the poor. And the verb for ruling is a verb we might expect for ruling uh, as it relates to um, authority, as it relates to decision making, as it relates to uh, calling the shots, if you will, and uh, in ways that uh, fallen humanity does not like. Um, A lot of uh, authority rebellion chafes at these issues. And so it's no question to me why Satan has chosen to make this a centerpiece of his rebellion, worldwide rebellion program. Particularly the idea of wealth disparity. Why do we have rich people? Why do we have poor people? And that seems wrong. It seems it's not fair. And if somebody is rich, well then they must have victimized the poor. And and so we have to redistribute that because it's not fair. The poor should have more. The rich should have less. And uh, if that was the case, then everybody would be happy and everybody would have world peace and everything would be marvelous if everybody was equal. And uh, all of the lies that come in, uh, in these philosophies are straight from the pit of hell. They're, sa- they're straight from Satan's program and they are in open defiance of the Scriptures. So I'm going to spend some time talking about this. And what does Proverbs say? It, Proverbs says the rich rules over the poor. That is a fact. That is a reality. It's not lamented, it's not praised, 
It's not cast in the light of a terrible thing, and it's not uh, celebrated in the light of a marvelous thing. It's simply factually laid out there as the reality of how the world works. It's the reality of God's design. It's the reality of free human beings in the image of God and how we relate to one another. And uh, the best way that we relate to one another is in the financial transactions of what we choose to do in what we buy and what we sell. Now, (laughs) let's finish the verse. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. So there's two halves, the A half and the B half of this verse. And they're complementary, they coordinate, they actually build. The second one builds on the first one. So we have to deal with wealth disparity, rich and poor on the first uh, activity, which is a ruling dynamic. And then we have a slavery dynamic in the second part. The borrower becomes the lender's slave. If you ever attend a, 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 a Dave Ramsey seminar or read a Dave Ramsey book or watch a Dave Ramsey video or anything, I mean you can't go five minutes with Dave Ramsey and not hear this verse, okay? Because he's constantly, constantly using this. This is like the theme verse of his entire ministry whereby you can boil down Dave Ramsey into uh, one sentence, it's get out of debt, okay? And uh, that's, the, that's the, the biggest benefit you can do to yourself financially is not have that weight of debt over your head because that has put you into that slave dynamic for whoever you're beholden to, whoever the promises are of repayment. And that's what we deal with here. All right. So the point as I wrote it, and I, I rewrote it several times, and, and this is I think the version I like the best. I, I still might rewrite it later on, but as it stands now, Wealth disparity. Now, I chose that because it matches the, the buzzwords that we encounter in, uh, in, in our culture today. Wealth disparity. That's a spectrum from the richest of the rich to the poorest of the poor and every level in between. And it doesn't matter what level we're talking about. We could be talking about two rich guys, but one is richer than the other. And so if you have two rich guys where one is richer than the other, which of those two then has the edge over the other one? Okay, This is what it comes down to is that you have more options when you have more finances and that you do call the shots. You do rule in that sense. The idea of ruling is exercising the decision-making sovereignty. Okay, Exercising the decision-making sovereignty. So wealth disparity is one thing and it has a ruling dynamic. But the borrowing-lending dynamic creates bondage. It creates bondage in the creation of a joint venture. And I phrase that for a reason as well. A joint venture. Because uh, this is what we deal with when we have uh, uh, business dealings, when we have uh, partnerships, when we have um, capitalistic endeavors. Those are joint ventures. Those are people that are coming together and they are contributing jointly to a uh, to an economic prospect. They're pooling capital. They're forming a corporation. They they have a joint venture when they are um, doing collectively more than what they could possibly do individually, right? And the, uh, the benefits of this are biblical. Not only have we learned them in secular life, but they are biblical as they are presented. Okay, In terms of even within Trinity, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're joint ventures. How productive is Trinity when Trinity is all working together? I believe Scripture bears this out. Now, so we start with the, um, the idea of the disparity, the rich and the poor. And, and when you have one that outranks the other on that spectrum, that's the one that's going to have the, the ultimate say. That's the one that's going to have the final, the final word. The, the sovereignty will be exercised in, uh, at, the end of the, uh, at the end of the endeavor. Okay, Because he's got more money to work with. He's going to be able to outbid the other one. And maybe the other one wants it, you know, but he got outbid, and and it comes down to the to the uh, to the purchase price, the or the uh, the, the purchase power of the uh, the wealth that's being brought to uh, to the decision. So there is a rule, the mashal, the the rule, and 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 it does speak uh, in terms of uh, we saw it lately in Genesis when um, your desire shall be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Remember that. That's the sovereignty that the husband is given in the marriage relationship. The two are heirs together, fellow heirs of the grace of life, and they have to, uh, they have to work together as heirs together of the grace of life. They have two volitions. Uh, the two become one, but they still have two sin natures and two volitions. All right. And so how does this dynamic work then when if, what if there is no unanimity? What if somebody has to submit to the, to the decision making of the other? What's the design? Okay. And so we have the ruling that takes place. All right. But then we have the uh the debt. What happens when somebody chooses to borrow? What happens when somebody makes the choice that he's going to become a borrower? Well, he just um in a sense, he just put himself under a duty under an obligation, under a promise. And it's a promise to repay. Okay, And uh, and so when you decide to become a borrower, it's more than just deciding to borrow money. Do you understand the difference? The decision to borrow money is one thing, but the decision to become a borrower, that's a state of being. That's a, that's a relationship uh, position. And that means that you are beginning a season of, of, a, uh, of a promise. A promise to repay. A promise to uh, gives you an obligation. You're now beholden to the one that you are promising. For whatever the terms are. Okay? You're buying a car over a certain period of time, buying a house over a certain period of time, doing, doing whatever you're doing over a period of time. Um, student loans or whatever it is you're, you're promising. Whatever it is you're going in debt for, you've got a period of time in which you are a borrower and you have made a promise. That promise is, I will repay. And in that I will repay promise, understand there are spiritual forces at work, not just, this is, the application is in the financial realm, but the principle is in the biblical realm. Because in the principle, you are actually placing yourself as an imitator of God Himself, as an imitator of Jesus Christ Himself. Because God has made promises. Jesus made promises. The promises to make a payment. The Son agreed to make a payment. And when did He agree to make that payment? It's actually from the foundation of the world. He was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. 
And when, when Father, Son, and Holy Spirit came together and made a plan by which they were going to bring about volitional beings in this universe, angels and humans, and that they were going to bring about free will in those volitional beings with full foreknowledge that Satan was going to fall and a third of the angels were going to follow after him and that Adam was going to fall with a full knowledge that the fall would happen. Jesus Christ agreed to make that payment. And so there was an agreement, there was a promise, there was a debt, if you will, between the Son and the Father, and the Son was willing to pay the price that the Father demanded. All right? So I hope, as I'm explaining these things, that that you realize the spiritual uh, truths that underlie the financial application that we're talking about here is so much bigger. Okay? Bigger than Dave Ramsey will ever give you. <laughs> or bigger than uh, Rush Dooney, or bigger than his son-in-law, I forget his name. Bigger than any of these guys that write about biblical economics. Because any economic transaction is a free will transaction between somebody who's giving something and somebody else who's giving something. And the two parties that agree to give and exchange are uh, either glorifying God or not glorifying God. They're either serving God or they're serving Satan. The counterfeit, the fraud, the liar who said that he would be like the Most High God. And so it does become a joint venture. And there's a play on words that I'm going to explain here in a moment, but that's uh, there's a reason why I, uh, I used that. Alright. Let's start with these debt principles. Debt principles regarding surety and pledges were previously seen and they're going to be seen again. Debt principles regarding surety and pledges. And and we don't actually have that here. The verse here simply speaks of a borrower and a lender and doesn't go into the detail to talk about a surety or a pledge or a guarantor or a creditor or any anything of that nature. Is actually going simpler than that. This verse is actually going to fundamental simplicity and in, in, in ways that we've only seen one previous time to this in, in Proverbs. But we have had debt principles previously given, and the biggest one came uh, in the childhood uh, lesson of Proverbs 6, 1 through 5. I hope you remember this, and I hope, um, in fact, we, we went through this and then we refreshed our thinking on this again in chapter 11 because it comes very early in the adult capacity of, of personal wisdom. Hit it again in chapter 17. It just comes again and again and again. My son, if you have become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger. What are you doing? <laughs> if you have been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with the words of your mouth. So right away we realize this isn't good. Okay? Verse 2 is making clear that verse 1 is a problem. You have become surety for your neighbor. What command of Scripture are you obeying when, when you did that dumb idea? Okay? This is a worldly process, not a biblical process. So if you've become surety for your neighbor, if you've given a pledge for a stranger, Meaning, if you have been snared with the words of your mouth and have been caught with the words of your mouth, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself. Deliver yourself. Save yourself. 
And that ought to be language that just shocks us. <laughs> because from Genesis to Revelation, the idea of saving yourself is, is unthinkable. Saving yourself is, is impossible. How do you save yourself? Okay, we can't save ourselves from sin. We can't give by our own eternal life. We can't, you know, the idea of saving yourself is, is not a biblical idea. But here's the Lord ordering this young man, a, a father telling his son, or God telling us through the scriptures. You're in a financial bondage here. Why? How'd you get into this? Your own mouth got in you in trouble, didn't it? Okay? You agreed to something that was not biblical. Becoming surety for a neighbor, becoming guarantor, being the, in other words, you agree to be the cosigner, you agree to be the guarantor of, of a business dealing that your neighbor himself couldn't back up. If your neighbor was, was on the, was, was following biblical principles, why would he need you to cosign? Okay? The whole principle of economics under the tribal structure of Israel and their theocracy was they, they conducted their business dealings with their family, with their clan, with their tribe, with their nation. They were following the principles. If they, if they had uh, commercial endeavors within the family, clan, tribe, and nation, then there were structures in place to do that with your family, your clan, your tribe, and your nation. Why do you need your neighbor to be your guarantor? To be because you're doing something beyond your, doing something shady, right? You're doing something inappropriate. You're doing something not sanctioned by your family, your clan, your tribe, or your nation. You're probably unequally yoked with a, with a, a Gentile somewhere. And that Gentile doesn't think you're good for it or needs additional collateral, needs additional business guarantees. Anyway, so to become a, a guarantor. Do this then, my son, and deliver yourself. Since you have come into the hand of your neighbor, go humble yourself and importune your neighbor. This is humiliating. You've you got to start begging. You've got to get out of this. Give no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Break that relationship today. And whatever the cost, okay, whatever the cost, are, is there, are there penalties for early withdrawal? Are there, is, there, is there a financial hit for, um, I mean, is there more damage that's going to be done? I mean, your neighbor's going to hate you, <laughs> okay? And your neighbor's creditor may start going after you, but do it now. It's only worse down the road. Anyway, this is the scripture command. Proverbs 11.15 He who is a guarantor for a stranger will surely suffer for it, but he who hates being a guarantor is secure. This is something you should legitimately hate. You should legitimately hate the satanic economic system of, uh, of debt slavery manipulation. So he who is a guarantor for a stranger and this too is where we have to understand um, we, we've gone from a neighbor now to a stranger and there are different dynamics for different people. He who hates being a guarantor is secure. Again, I would ask yourself, why are you in this business dealing? Why are you serving in the office of a guarantor? Okay. Now it's one thing to be in an office of a lender and it's appropriate, you can be a lender if you so choose, and as a lender 
You can be a grace lender, which is very marvelous. We're going to see grace principles of lending, whereby again, you're going to be uh, an imitator of, of Jesus Christ. You're going to be an imitator of the Father. There are principles of lending where you're even lending to God. How cool is that? <laughs> you know? Because anybody you lend to, you can anticipate there's going to be a future dealing when he comes back to repay. And man, I want to be God's lender. Because I want to have some sweet fellowship with the Lord when God comes back and repays. Alright. Uh, we also had it in chapter 17. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> a man lacking sense pledges and becomes guarantor in the presence of his neighbor. In other words, you stand up and you say, I am going to bankroll that. I am going to guarantee that. I am going to be the, uh, the security for that. You're lacking sense. You've lost heart. You're actually damaging your heart, the innermost part of your soul. Becoming guarantor in the presence of his neighbor. What is this about anyway? Why are you getting into this? It's not God's design. Again, I would ask you, when you pursue all of Mosaic Law, when you study the Pentateuch, when you see how God set up His theocracy, when you see how God set up His business dealings, what His expectations were for Israel and their business dealings, and God laid out a, a uh, system, we can learn a lot from that system. Now we can't imitate all of it because we're not a theocracy and, and there's, there's some things that would be kind of hard to adapt in a, in a Gentile, secular Gentile nation. But still there are attitudes and principles that could clearly be gleaned from to underlie what we do in, in America or what we do in Texas or what we do in Austin or, or what have you. And when he structures, uh, when he structures it this way, and it's always for our good. His design for marriage is better than anything Satan can pervert. His desire for family is better than anything Satan can pervert. His desire for nations is better than anything Satan can pervert. And within the desire, the design for nations includes the, uh, the legal system, the commercial system, the economic system, the judicial system, the uh, law enforcement system. I mean just everything as it relates to the operation of a society. Okay? On a state and national level. Local, state, and national level. It's all right there in scriptures, just learn from it. So if you're out of your mind though, you're going to follow Satan's program and you're going to get involved with pledges. You're going to get involved with um, creditors. You're going to get involved with a, uh, an industry that preys on its victims. It's an enslaving, it's an economically enslaving system. Whereas God's system is economically uh, liberating. It's economically freeing. In fact, they would have um, Sabbath, economic Sabbath years every seven years. They would have uh, Jubilee years every 50 years. They would have um, blessings for financial resets, including, by the way, this gets me in trouble, including, by the way, slavery, debt slavery, on a limited structure to get a man back on his feet, but it's handled through the family, the clan, and the tribe. And when the redemption comes, it's a kinsman redeemer that's setting that man free. Praise God. Okay? 
Anyway, no, Pastor Bob is not advocating we return slavery to the American system. I'm on tape, I'm on YouTube, all right, I'm on the record. But you've lost your mind if you've become guarantor. Uh, Proverbs 20 and verse 16. Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger and for foreigners, hold him in pledge. There's more context to that, we've dealt with that before. In fact, you can't keep the garment overnight if that's his only garment. There's other principles in the law that deal with that. And later on in Proverbs 22, we're going to hit this issue again in Proverbs 22. Now that's across the hinge. That's once you get past verse 17 and you actually get into the next section of Proverbs where you have the sayings of the wise and we're told in the sayings of the wise, do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debts. Don't do it. It's like in the Ten Commandments when it says thou shalt not. Okay? Don't do it. More than a helpful hint. This is, this is the, the will of God. Among those who become guarantors for debts. Okay? Again, we're talking about neighbors, we're talking about strangers, we're talking about um, the being unequally yoked in satanic business practices and economic systems. We're not talking about family issues. Again, you, if you're keeping it family, clan, tribe, now you're, you're staying within the, the attitudes and principles that, that are given in the Bible. Okay? So if you, uh, you know, co-sign for your kid's car loan or whatever, you're not breaking the commandment. If you, uh, if you help your child get through school, you're not breaking the commandment. Okay? Those are, you're actually complying with the principles that the Scripture has given for families and clans and tribes and in the mutual support of one another. All right. We'll have this principle again in 27.13. Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger and for an adulterous woman, hold him in pledge. That's a separate context. We'll get with that. 28.8. He who increases his wealth by interest and usury. Ooh, now we're getting into it. Okay? Because again, this is the satanic method. God never designed this. God has principles for increasing wealth and the increase of wealth is the reflection of productivity is the reflection of productivity and the accumulated pro, uh, profits along with the gracious generosity that, uh, that coincides. Not by interest in usury. Not by satanically victimizing, profiting over the misfortune of others. And uh, finding the, the opportune season with which to, uh, to put up a string of payday loan centers and... and, and uh, uh, pawn shops and other victimization uh, devices. Increasing wealth by interest and usury. And one of the greatest blessings that the medieval church ever did, and this was pre-Reformation by the way, this is the medieval Roman Western church, was they wrestled with Scripture pertaining to interest and usury on the one hand and um, investing and con- voluntarily contributing on the other hand. Because they could have never developed biblical capitalism had they not de- developed biblical um, 
the, these principles of, of interest and usury. They had to reconcile both and present a legitimate issue. Because the idea of delayed gratification, the idea of investing and serving others with, your, uh, with the production of your hands is, is the imitation of God Himself. Anyway, so the medieval Roman church developed that. And the Protestant church took it and ran with it in spades. It's amazing. Anyway, more on that I recommend. Uh, my favorite author in that realm is Rodney Stark. Read Rodney Stark on the, the uh, victory of reason. Now, so we've had debt principles already. but um, And we're going to get to it again. But just the idea of outright lending, just something that talks about a borrower and a lender without the element of uh, guarantor or surety or interest or usury, anything that just takes it back to a more simplistic basis like we have here, that's only occurred one previous time. That's only occurred once, and that happened in Proverbs 19.17 in the very uh, remarkable statement that says, the one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his good deed. It's a marvelous principle about displaying grace to the poor. One who is gracious to the poor. Now you can be gracious in a lot of ways. You can be gracious in in a charitable way. You can be gracious in a giving way. You can also be gracious in a lending way. There's a lot of ways to manifest grace. But just the grace attitude and the practical expression of that towards the poor in the spiritual realm, God says He considers that alone to Him. He, God considers that that you have loaned to God. And God puts Himself under that borrower relationship. God puts Himself in the obligation mode whereby God Himself chooses to repay us for the goodness. Okay? It comes down to God's attitude. When God looks at a believer functioning in grace, God views that as a loan that He wants to repay. A loan that He wants to repay. Okay? And we talked about that. That was, that was a fun series of classes. We, we dealt with that in chapter 19, if you recall. Now, those are the debt principles. Now let's talk about this relationship a little bit further. Because the verb for buying, I'm sorry, the verb for borrowing is the same verb as the verb for lending. And the verb is lava. The verb is lava. L-A-V-A-H. Lava. Some might say L-A-W-A-H, depending on how they transliterate the, the wow or the vav. Okay? Lava. I have no problem with lava. I like lava. L-A-V-A-H. Lava. And it's a verb that means to join. If it's active, in the passive it's to be joined. If you need help remembering this, I always like baby names as my memory device. I get this from the Bible. And so Jacob's right woman is Leah. This is before he insisted on becoming a polygamist and getting his own way and stomping his feet and 
he, uh, he wanted to marry the pretty girl and God gave him the, the, uh, the older sister first. But she gives birth to Reuben and she has a spiritual basis for his name. She gives birth to uh, Simeon and she, and, and she has a spiritual basis for his name. I, I just, the whole process here the Lord saw that Leah was unloved and he opened her womb but Rachel was barren and Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben. The Lord sees. Behold a son. The verb for seeing and the, the noun for son. Reuben. She says, the Lord has seen my affliction. Surely now my husband will love me. Nope. <laughs> she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard. So we have the verb for seeing and we have the verb for hearing. And you're getting a Hebrew lesson this morning. You're getting basic Hebrew vocabulary. So you learn about uh, Simeon, the verb shama, to listen, to hear, to heed and obey. Shama. So she names him Simeon. The Lord has seen, that's Reuben, the Lord has heard Simeon. The Lord has heard that I am unloved and he has therefore given me this son also. She's still unloved. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't keep him from having sex with her, I notice. I mean, she keeps having these babies. But he doesn't love her. He loves her sister. But she's not having any babies. Because God's closed her womb. So she conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time, third time's the charm, right? This time my husband will be joined to me, will become attached to me. Not just the sex, the physical attachment, the joining, but the soul attachment my husband will become soul attached to me. And the verb there is lava. My husband will be lava. Lava, okay? And don't I know lava sounds like love. Get get rid of that. Lava. The Hebrew is it's not love, it's attachment. My husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons, therefore he was named lava, Levi attached, joined, joined, okay? Joined. And this whole principle, and I think there's, there's a big deal here, and I think the, the principle of being joined, when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, there is a, there's an element here about being joined, and for Levi to be the priestly tribe, um, I think etymologically there's, a, there's an element there, where what, what is a priesthood designed to do? What is the nature of being joined to God? Okay? And I think there's even connected, related to uh, Leviathan. Leviathan is the, the, the Levi Tanin, the, the joined, the Levitical dragon. Because Tanin is the dragon in the Levi Tanin of Leviathan. Okay? Anyway, that's, that's a whole different sermon right there. Um, but here's Levi, meaning joined. And what happens when you engage in a debt borrowing situation is now you are joined. The borrower and the lender are joined. The borrower is joined to the lender in the obligation to repay him. The lender is joined to the borrower in the um, in the 
uh, risk that he's taking in, in lending in the first place, or in the uh, if it's a carnal lending, then in the uh, uh, the harboring of, of resentment uh, for lack of repayment, in the ungracious attitude that's going to throw him in prison and demand you repay every last cent, okay, which we see in the the parable there with the the uh, the slave that couldn't repay. Um, it just the the satanic dynamic that then twists hearts and attitudes and and things because there's no grace in this picture, okay, unless you're you're starting with grace as a grace lending, okay, and and that becomes are you doing a satanic lending or grace lending? We'll have to talk about I guess those issues there too. Now the verb, like I say, the verb lava. Now this is where we have a blessing because um, the verb lava. Um, in the cow stem or in the hifil stem or in the in the uh, nifal. I mean the Hebrew language has different stems that can speak to either an active activity or a passive activity or a causative activity. If you can cause somebody to do something. And that's really where the difference between borrowing and lending comes about. Because a borrower is uh, is somebody that does this verb. And a lender is somebody that is caused to do this verb. <laughs> so in a sense, a lender is somebody who causes somebody, I'm sorry, a borrower is causing somebody to become a lender. That makes sense? You're causing somebody to become a lender. Because he wouldn't be a lender if you didn't cause him to be a lender. If you didn't borrow from him, then the fact that you're borrowing from him means you're causing him to become a lender. One way to look at it. It's a Hebrew way to look at it. That's the vocabulary of, of lava way to look at it. And I find this remarkable because it's given in the law. It's given repeatedly in the law. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, all right, that uh, yeah, there's going to be some, some of your countrymen are going to be struggling. And if you do lend to them, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. See, this now takes us into the language of um, the, the surety, the pledge, the, um, the satanic manipulations that come in through usury and interest. You shall not act as a creditor to him. That's different vocabulary altogether, different verbal activity, different, uh, it's not God's design. So who came up with this idea? <laughs> who invented all this? Where did this all come from? Who was the first person to realize, you know what? We can make money not by producing anything. We can make money by um, victimizing those that, that need it. Victim victimizing those that we can. All right. Acting as a creditor. Manipulating the finances. And by the way, inflation is one of the great weapons that does this. One of the horrendous weapons that does this. And our nation's about to get, get it uh, with both barrels. All right, so you shall not act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever do take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. Okay? If that's his only covering, it's the cloak for his body, what else is he going to sleep in? If he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious 
And here's the problem. God is gracious and you're, you're using a non-grace mechanism. And that's a problem. So God puts laws in place to deal with that. Deuteronomy 28, 12. The Lord will open up for you His good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. This is a national economic policy. A matter of national policy that a nation's GDP ought to have a surplus. And the nation's GDP in a surplus can be a creditor nation, not a borrower nation. Because remember what happens, the, the borrower is the slave to the, to the lender. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. That's the principle. It's used twice there. The same verb to lend and to borrow are both lava in that same verse. You get down to verse 44 of the same chapter. Yeah, there's a larger context for this, but um, (laughs) the cricket shall possess all of your trees and the produce of your ground. That's not a good thing. The alien who is among you shall rise above you higher and higher, but you will go down lower and lower. That's not a good thing. When you have foreigners living in your land as an alien and they're willing to work and you're going further and further into debt, you're so wrapped up in your sin you don't even know what you're doing. He shall lend to you, but you will not lend to him. He shall be the head and you shall be the tail. (laughs) Can we get more clear on this? It's kind of blunt. All right. Uh, Nehemiah. When Nehemiah is bringing them uh, back into the land, Ezra, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, the three returnings from captivity. There were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. If you're going into debt to pay your taxes, what are you doing? Our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. We are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. This was, this was a sad day. And uh, Nehemiah got pretty, uh, pretty angry. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Nehemiah, yeah, he was not happy in this chapter to hear these things. Uh, Psalms 37, 21. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. Now here's the other thing. When you're engaged in this kind of activity, you're still making a promise. When you take out a loan, you are still saying, I will repay. And when you say, I will repay, the God of truth is going to hold you to that. God the Father says, I mean, you can't declare an intention to make a payment and then not make the payment. What are you doing? The God of truth is, uh, is going to be furious with you on this. That's, that's, a, that's a wicked application there. But the righteous is gracious and gives. You want to be satanic or you want to be gr- gracious? Uh, get down to verse 26 of the same chapter. Let's see. The steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. 
When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. One of my favorite psalms anywhere in the Bible is the idea we're walking with God and God's holding our hand. And we're like a little toddler, you know, a little toddler that trips and he's dangling. And that's fine because dad's got his hand. And he just dangles like a, you know, a rag doll or whatever. And the dad puts the little toddler back on his feet. And you just keep on walking. That's what happens. Okay? The dad's not blaming the kid for tripping. I mean, that's what kids do. Okay? And Zoe, if you fall one more time, we're going home. Because she fell 10 times in a 30-minute span. <laughs> Don't get me going on that. All right. When he falls, he will not. I should have been holding her hands, what I should have been doing, so she wouldn't keep falling. I must not have known this verse back then. All right. The Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. You know, in all of his long life, David said, you know what, I never saw a believer regret serving God. I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, for, and his descendants are a blessing. Okay? If you're living in the Word of God and you're following His principles, there are consequences for that, benefits from that, blessings for that. Defy the will of God and uh, pay the price. Psalm 112, verse 5. It is well with a man who is gracious and lands. He will maintain his cause and judgment. See, you can land, you can, in grace, you can land. Also in grace, you can freely give. Okay? When you're uh, taking pledges and surety and involving the courts and, and uh, throwing your debtor into, in, or your, uh, your victim into debtor's prison, uh, if you're victimizing and enslaving, what are you doing? What are you doing? That's not gracious and lending. Uh, of course, we already had Proverbs nineteen seventeen about lending to the Lord, right? When that we saw that one already. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord; he will repay him for his good deed. Twenty two seventeen is our passage today. There's an eschatological passage in Isaiah twenty four two. Isaiah twenty four twenty five twenty six twenty seven. This these chapters in Isaiah make up what's sometimes called Isaiah's little apocalypse. It's like a little four-chapter centerpiece in the book of Isaiah that's similar to uh, Daniel or Revelation or Zechariah, any of the apocalyptic passages of, of Hebrew eschatology. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. That's not good. <laughs> okay? And thankfully, this is not for us. This is Israel's future judgment in the, in the Great Tribulation. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Equality? It's not good. <laughs> Here's a verse with total equality. Man, we're all the same. Everybody's equal. The people like the priest, the servant like the master, the maid like the mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, creditor like the debtor. Woohoo! We have economic equality, we have racial equality, we have occupational equality, we have 
sex equality. I mean, we're all equally slaves. We're all equally awful. We're horrendously equal in our poverty of this global judgment. The earth will be completely laid waste, completely despoiled. For the Lord has spoken His word, and the earth mourns and withers, withers, the world fades and withers. Anyway, this is what you have. You want to bring about a great equality utopia under communism? You're all equally slaves. The slave masters, you know, some are more equal than others, okay? That's the animal farm reality. All right. I'm out of time and I'm out of slides. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the principles of Scripture. And I pray, Father, we're going to have some more coming up. I believe, Father, in uh, the Genesis series is really going to provide a foundation for nationalism instead of globalism, a foundation for uh, marriage, family, nations, the principles of biblical economics. Uh, the Mosaic Law just lays it all out there, Father, in very clear terms. And I pray that we understand how we can operate at least as individuals and marriages and families, even if uh, we're not permitted to operate this way anymore in our nation. But Father, uh, open our eyes to your truth that we might be gracious, that we might be reflections of, of your wisdom. And Father, might we uh, owe nothing to any man but to love one another. I just thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.